think it's also a timely presentation. Number one, it's Respiratory Month, and number two, we're all kind of transitioning between roles here. So the current interns are going to be R2s, and they will be predominantly responsible for all the ALS runs, including most of the non-traumatic, all of the non-traumatic intubations pretty much, and you know, some of the trauma intubations too. So I think this will be a good reminder. The um, the R2s who are becoming R3s obviously are going to be doing all the traumatic intubations and by default all of those are difficult intubations. We'll get into that. And then the seniors who are graduating, the buck stops with you. So you guys are the last, first and last line. So I think as you have developed these skill sets over the years, it's a reminder of how to kind of break down what you already know, what's inherent in your bones. So I hope this is helpful, even though I've given this once before. And uh, so let, let's talk a little bit. I have no financial disclosures. I'd like to start with a case. And maybe, Dr. Ray, you could help me out with this case. So I have, um, we have a 65-year-old woman who came in to the emergency department, and she's sitting in... <coughs> what is previously ED2, and she complained of a swollen tongue and some difficulty breathing. Really not an uncommon case. Um, she took ibuprofen two hours prior to her arrival. Here are her vital signs, and this is um, a quick, quick physical exam and assessment as you walk into the room. You start talking to her. You don't know what she normally sounds like, but you clearly identify she doesn't usually sound like this. Dr. Ray, I'm wondering. <laughs> <laughs> Ray, Ray, Dr. Ray, what, uh, are, what are we doing? Okay, has this ever happened before? She said, no, I've never had this problem before. <laughs> okay, sounds good. I want to take a quick look at her mouth and see how swollen her tongue is, see if she can stick it out. I want to take a look and see how uh, difficult this airway could be. I want to take a look at how fat her neck is and see if I can feel her... Uh, thyroid area, all while I'm talking to her and trying to get a little bit of history from her and her family. Great. Um, and is she in a trauma bag? to a trauma bag? Great. So that's, I think you're, you're, you're doing everything in parallel, which is wonderful. So as you assess her, you do notice that her tongue does seem to be swollen, and her voice obviously doesn't sound <laughs> right. And you ask the nurse in charge, or you wheel her over into a, a free resuscitation bay. And uh, that's wonderful. So this is the start of the case, and we'll come back to it after we've discussed um, a multitude of different things to get to the point where you're already at, which is good. So some objectives. Um, we're going to talk about how to prepare to intubate a patient. I know a lot of you guys go through <coughs> your algorithm in your brain, and you go, well, I, I know I need to intubate this patient, but I want you guys to break it down and, and figure out um, what are the steps, if you will, to, to, get, to get to the intubation? We have a lot of help at UC Irvine, a lot of help. So you have an extra faculty member, you have nurses, you have techs. But remember when you guys are moonlighting or working independently or not working in UCI, it could be completely different. So you have to really know where your equipment is um, and if it's working properly and how to prepare all those steps <coughs> before. Um, oftentimes, you know, I, I know that when I'm 
helping with an intubation. I'm drawing up the meds just so I can have you concentrate. But those are some of the things that you're going to have to do as well. So we're going to know how to prepare to intubate a patient. We're going to assess the patient for a difficult airway, like Dr. Ray was saying, and how to do that. And then we're going to learn how to perform an awake intubation. So these are the objectives of this talk. What we are not going to actually discuss is uh, whether or not to intubate a patient. That's a different lecture, um, and we will cover that at a later time. This is not a lecture on RSI. It isn't. Um, you guys should know RSI already, and if you don't, we should have another reminder talk on that. We're not going to talk about the different medication choices in depth. We will kind of cover it in brief. And it's not a lecture on how to perform a cricothyroidotomy. So we've done that in simulation sessions, and we've had lectures on it in the past. So, so that's what we're not going to cover. Uh, I wanted to start with some airway pearls and to really kind of set the tone. So uh, the some of these airway pearls kind of resonate in my brain. The emergency physician responsible for airway management for patients in the emergency department. So you guys are the masters of the airway. And anesthesia is very, very, very good. They do it all the time. But they, they don't do it on an emergent or urgent basis. And they have the choice, if you will, to cancel a case before it even starts. We don't have that choice in the emergency department. So you are responsible for every single airway. Now you may choose to get help, and that's OK. You may ask um, ENT or, or, or anesthesia to come down, and there's no, no shame in doing that. But you, you, should, you should develop an expertise in this, in this realm. Any patient who requires the establishment of an airway also requires protection of that airway. Um, it's kind of circular logic, but really, if you're thinking about intubating someone, then you need to intubate someone, essentially. Here's a stickler that I know I've spoken to many of you guys about, which is the gag reflex. So the gag reflex does not correlate well with airway protection and is of no clinical value, is of no clinical value, is of no clinical value when assessing the need for intubation. Mm -hmm. So I really cannot stress this more. And I still sometimes hear people talking about the gag reflex and whether or not they should consider intubating somebody. It's, it, it, if you gag them and they vomit and they aspirate, you've just made things a heck of a lot worse. If you gag them and they don't gag, what, you have gained nothing. So what's the point? Acute progressive anatomical distortion is a potential time bomb. Intubate early before deterioration occurs. No, sometimes we always think about, well, should we intubate someone? I don't know. Um, but I think if you have those spidey senses come up, I, I understand end-of-life issues. I understand uh, pulse forms and decisions that should be made by the family. That discussion, yes, you should have right away if you can in this weird setting. Talk to the family and talk to the patient if they are responsive, whether or not you want them intubated. But if you have things that are progressing quite rapidly, it's better to act than not to act. And, and that may not mean RSI, it just means you need to protect their airway before you lose it completely. If the anticipated clinical course is one of deterioration, intubate early before airway compromise. Again, these are our trauma patients that we go down with the GCS of less than eight. These are folks who we think are going to not, um, you know, that are, that are aspiration risks and so on and so forth, and we're going to send them down to the CT scanner. So really make sure that you control the airway. Uh, 
And then here's um, another one of my pet peeves, our ABGs. I think they're very rarely helpful, at least when it comes to your decision to intubate or not. And we see this come up a lot of times with our internal medicine colleagues, especially on those COPDers. Um, well, what's the ABG? And I'm not saying it doesn't give um, some information, but it doesn't give you information on whether you need to tube them or not. Um, and and there's no absolute value one way or the other that would say, oh, wow, well, their PCO2 is 70, so I'm going to intubate them. Or their PCO2 is 40, I'm going to intubate them or not. So it's really how they're doing clinically, and, but we're not going to talk about that. Particularly now, I just wanted to set the tone. So our emergency airway algorithm. Dr. Kim? Yes. You have a patient that is unconscious, unreactive, or near death. Yes. You've had some of these, I'm sure, in the emergency department. And if the answer is yes, like you've said, what are we doing? Uh, so what do we, I mean, we got to tube this guy. So we got to intubate um, them. How? How? Um, unconscious, unreactive, or near death. So uh, we'll just put the tube in as soon as we can. Mm-hmm. Uh, paralytic, unreactive, and uh, paralytic and uh, treatment. Good. So you're talking about a crash airway algorithm, right? So we're talking, do we have time or do we not have time? You just said, put the tube in right away. And that's exactly what we're going to talk about. What does that mean? What is a crash airway algorithm? It means, do you need paralytics and do you need um, um, other forms of RSI, right? So do you need automatate and and an induction agent? Sorry, the word was escaping me. So um, do you need an induction agent? Probably not, right? They're almost dead or just about dead. And do you do you need succinylcholine? One could argue one way or the other about succinylcholine, whether you really want to loosen a lot of the musculature. But it's a crash airway algorithm. If you're performing a crash airway algorithm <coughs> and that fails, what should we do, Dr. Rendon? Surgical airway. Great. So you go to a failed airway algorithm, which is a surgical airway. If the patient is not unconscious or conscious, is reactive and not near death, I know there's a lot of double negatives there. Um, Dr. Paterno, what are we doing? Is that a difficult airway or not? That's what we're doing, right? So now we have a little bit of time. We, don't, we, we may have minutes rather than seconds, maybe it's three to five minutes. We want to really assess whether this patient has a difficult airway. We'll get into that a little bit. If they don't have a difficult airway, then we're going to do RSI. That's your induction agent and your paralytic. We're not going to talk about the specifics of that. If RSI doesn't work, you're going to your failed airway algorithm. All right? And, and and really, when, when you have fail and fail, what does that really mean? What is a failure? Anyone? Dr. Weber? You can't establish your airway, but how? So it's. Through the mouth. Exactly. But, but it's mainly two attempts at oh, trying oh, okay. to. So okay. failure is described as two attempts in a skilled. Um, operator. And most of you guys are skilled, but the true definition of skilled is someone 
who's in my eyes would be like a senior resident, you know, in the middle of their senior year or an attending physician. So it's two failed attempts by a skilled operator. That's failure. So a lot of times we do RSI. It's a tricky airway. It's an anterior airway. We try once. We try twice. We don't get it. It's obviously pretty hard. It's going to be bumped up to the next level, whether it's a junior to a senior or a senior to an attending. And I know when I'm getting a tube at that level, it's going to be super duper hard. And I know you guys are really good at doing that. But just remember that, okay? And then the other thing you should always remember is if it doesn't work the first time, is to do something different the second time. And that can be something simple or, or, or not. And that can mean bougies. If you haven't used the bougie in the first go around, it can be your um, glide scope. It can be changing the position of the head, putting uh, blankets or pillows underneath the patient's head. Um, it can be positioning. It can be the, your laryngoscope. It can be a number of things. But certainly, you have to do something different and don't beat your head against the wall and, and, and not get anywhere. If it's a difficult airway, then you're going to go to your difficult airway algorithm, um, once again, that we'll talk about. If your difficult airway algorithm fails, we're back to your surgical airway, your failed airway algorithm. All right. So very quickly, this is how we're going to try to identify a difficult airway. Just think of this triangle. Here's RSI. <laughs> If they're going to have problems with any of these three items, so if they're going to be difficult to bag, if they're going to be a difficult tube, laryngoscope, and difficult view, or if they're going to be a difficult surgical airway, you should, you should be concerned. Now, that doesn't always mean you don't do RSI, but you should have your backup equipment already in the room. I know we have our GlideScope pretty handy in there, but really think about other options, including not doing RSI. And so that's where we're trying to get at with today's lecture. So there's a mnemonic called MOANS, and MOANS really is, there's a lot of mnemonics, but, and the mnemonics are only helpful if you remember them. But um, I just, you know, this, this is the type of person that we might have a hard time bagging, right? They have a beard and and whatnot. So some of the some of the problems with bag valving is if you can predict that this person will have a poor seal around um, the mask. And so that oftentimes is with facial hair or abnormal faces, but facial hair and some people advocate lubing, if you will, lubing the outside of the actual mask so it kind of sits better with a better seal. Obesity and obstruction, uh, this gentleman's a little bit larger. Age um, the older you are, the harder it is to actually bag somebody. Um, if they're edentulous, if they don't have teeth, it basically um, it, it is harder for that seal and then harder for the air to kind of go into the airways. So a lot of folks actually, um, if you see like the really, if you have time, if you're, if you're thinking about intubating someone and someone has dentures, you actually keep the dentures in initially before you intubate them, just in case um, if you're trying to bag them and, and pre-oxygenate them. And then right when you're about to tube them, you take the teeth out because you want most of that tissue, you want more space in the mouth so you can actually look. So you can keep the teeth in and then remove them. And then of course if they're stiff, and really that's kind of stiff, stiff lungs, okay?
um, a review of um, how it might be difficult for a good view. You all know about the Melampati views, and um, really, you know, class one, class two, class three, and class four views. And I think last time I asked Rod to give me a demonstration of how to look at that Melampati view. So you're supposed to have <laughs> you're supposed to have the patient open their mouth and stick their tongue out without saying ah. So that's a true Melampati view. Not not that that's a huge thing in this lecture, but if a true Melampati view is you have them stick their tongue out without saying ah, because that's the view that you're going to get when you're actually um, looking down there. So you look externally, you evaluate with this 3-3-2 rule. Um, that kind of helps you quickly decide whether this, might, this patient might be um, uh, might be a difficult look, and you can see what the 3-3-2 rule here is, and it's really three fingers, three of the patient's fingers in the mouth. If that you can fit three fingers of the patient in the mouth or predict that you can fit three, then that's good. If you have three fingers from the thyromental din distance of the mentum to the hyoid, and then two fingers um, from the distance of the larynx to the base of the tongue. So that really gives you a really good view. We talked about melampati. We talked talked about obstruction. Are there any signs of obstruction? Upper airway obstruction obviously is going to be a difficult intubation and obviously when you're having strider that's that's pretty severe airway obstruction. And then neck mobility. Is there any reason why this would be a difficult intubation? I mean I think 30 or 40, maybe 30 percent of all our intubations in the ED are trauma patients so by definition you can't really manu manipulate their neck especially if it's um, head trauma um, where you have a C-collar in place. So, so that's, that's always challenging. And, so, um, and then elderly patients um, sometimes just have stick, uh, stiff necks. And then if they have rheumatoid, you have to be extremely, extremely important cognizant of that. Um, if they're going to be a difficult crike. <laughs> so obviously, there's another mnemonic called uh, short, and short stands in short for surgery. So if they've ever had surgery on their neck, if they have a huge hematoma that's growing, if they are obese, once again, if they've had radiation, um, if they have a tumor. So anything that you think that's in the neck that's going to be difficult, in including what uh, we mainly deal with is, o is obesity. Um, so, you know, and, and, and if you look at the other mnemonic, um, the first one, sorry, uh, obesity is in here too. So the, usually the people that are difficult to bag are also the people <coughs> that are difficult to crike. So um, just something to keep in mind. All right. Um, and then, and then what I wanted to kind of um, it, to really iterate is the seven P's of RSI. There's, there's seven P's. One's preparation. Get all of your equipment ready, right? So you know you're going to intubate somebody. Check your equipment. So you have two of your tubes loaded. You make sure the balloons are ready. Seven and a half and an eight or seven and a half and a seven. I would start with a seven and a half just to reiterate that. A lot of people are grabbing for sevens right away. In an adult patient, you shouldn't be grabbing for a seven. You should be grabbing in a normal adult male an eight. And, and, and if you want, a seven and a half. That way, if they ever need a bronch, that's, that would be appropriate. You want to pre-oxygenate these people. I really want to stress that. So get them, if you know you're going to tube them, I know there's this whole um, talk and movement about COPD patients and, and are you going to 
prevent their oxygen, you know, their the respiratory drive because you you have too much oxygen on board. Well, you know this person's about to be intubated. Just really get get the non-rebreather on there to get them as high as possible and fill up all the box cars and make sure you get all the oxygen not only in the hemoglobin but into their um, intracellular in their plasma. That's going to be really important. There is, um, we'll talk about this just a little bit, but pre-treatment, there's, uh, we don't really do pre-treatment that much here, but there's, um, you know, um, uh, 0.1 milligrams per kilogram of, of, of rocuronium or vecuronium is oftentimes used if, if you have someone in a neuro case. Lidocaine is often used for tight lungs and tight heart and tight brain. We don't really use it because the evidence is kind of shaky. I, I don't use it myself because I just think it's one more thing for me to do that doesn't have really that much good data, so I don't do it. Um, paralysis with induction goes without saying. You guys get that pretty well, so you're going to know your paralytics and induction medications. Protection and positioning, so you want to make sure that you have the tube in the right place and you've positioned it well. It positions the patient's head well so you can actually see. And placement with proof, you really want to make sure that when you intubate somebody, you know you've put it through the uprights and, and once you've done that, then, then you want to confirm with your entitled CO2 and with your chest x-ray. So, you know, we a lot of times <coughs> leave the bedside and, and we're like, yes, we got an intubation and, you know, entitled CO2 is doing really well and you saw it go through the cords and, and uh, you have good condensation and no sounds over the belly and you're very confident it's in the trachea somewhere and then, you know, we forget and they get a right main stem intubation and you haven't really changed that. And then the other thing is when you change something, at least right now, the um, industry standard is to get another chest x-ray. I know Arthur Yusefian has been working on a project to look at endotracheal placement um, with ultrasound and maybe that's coming down the pipeline. I wouldn't be confident in my own skills to do that um, because I never have, but I'm sure you guys, um, it's sometime in our lifetime that that will come down the pipeline. And then post-intubation management, don't forget about that, especially in your asthmatics. Um, you know, you're the physician, and it's not just you intubating the patient, it's you figuring out in the next two or three hours what is going to optimize this per person's well-being such that I can get them to the ICU and have a good progress, you know, and, and maybe get discharged from the ICU in two or three days and have a chance. So that's really intubating and managing the vent, vent as best as possible. So you're going to tell the respiratory therapist, hey, and they're really smart, but, you know, you went to medical school and you went to residency, so you have ICU experience and you'll say, well, you know, they're an asthmatic, I'm going to use a r lower respiratory rate and a lower tidal volume, can we please set them at this and this? And could you get me an ABG in an hour, and then I'm going to drop them down from 100% to 60%, and you know, just just kind of do that ICU care uh, early on. And the other thing that I've also noticed is um, I wanted to just touch base with you guys on this: is a lot of people are bag valve masking people before they're intubating people. Uh, I wouldn't do that; it's not recommended. So if you have someone who's on a non-rebreather. And they're satting okay, so the oxygen saturations are okay, and you have them. Let's say, you, here's a typical scenario. A person comes in, you're about to intubate someone. Um, they're not hypoxemic. Let's say you're intubating them because of, um, because of uh, airway compromise for some reason. And so you have them on a non-rebreather. They're satting at 
and then all of a sudden you push your paralytics and your induction and paralytics and then the respiratory therapist starts bagging the patient. All you're doing is insufflating the stomach and that big Mac is coming out and going to F up your day. So don't do that. There are times where you might have to do that. Let's say their SATs are low and you have to like really give them some ventilation prior to that. And therefore, you're kind of stuck between a rock and a hard place. And you have to bag them, you have to bag them. And there's something called delayed sequence intubation. I never gave that lecture to you guys. I wish I had actually prepared it for this one, um, which is really interesting, which, which kind of recommends bagging them with some positive pressure ventilation and then, then giving sucks later. All right. Yes? So in a case such as um, someone who's, let's say, a congestive heart failure patient who comes in and they're satting in the mid-80s, respiratory rate of, I don't know, in the 30s initially, and then you put them, their mental status is not quite as well enough where you could order um, BiPAP, but you know you're going to have to tube them. The question is, how do I do this to maximize that this oxygen disassociation curve, which in someone who is moderately ill or severely ill, maybe even obese, that this curve doesn't come down too precipitously, right? So you're, if you start out, let's say here, that curve is going to drop in like two minutes. So you, you push your induction agent, you push your paralytics, and then boom, you know, in a minute, they start desaturating. And then these, they desaturate really quickly. And so then they might spiral into a ventricular arrhythmia and then asystole. So the thought is, if you can get this sick person who was over here to maybe into the high 90s or mid 90s, then you would have a little extra time, another additional two minutes or so, that would help you just in case the intubation doesn't go like smooth as butter. And so you would do what's called a delayed sequence intubation, that's when you give them this positive pressure ventilation, and then you get them, you're never going to probably get them up to 100. But you might get them into the, like, the low or mid-90s, and then you push your, paralytic, your induction and your paralytic, and then you have that. Just gain yourself a couple of extra minutes. But all of this is, um, is, not, is not a zero-sum game, you know, because you're going to increase their risk for aspiration by bag-valving them. But don't bag-valve them when everything seems, like their oxygenation seems to be pretty well. You don't need to do that. I'm sorry if you already covered this, but it's the reason why um, very young children do sat so quickly because they still have not a full complement of Um, That's a good question. Um, <coughs> and kids tend to desaturate really quickly. Um, uh, I don't know the answer to that. They have a lower Reserve, okay. Dr. Langdorf, is that true? Um, I've certainly heard people say that, but I don't know what that means as a pulmonary reserve, their functional residual capacity. I don't know exactly which parameter is mm -hmm. they have less of than us. I've certainly heard less reserve. Okay. I, I think it's that, okay. it's that one section on the pulmonary curve where you don't actually use a physiologic breathing, but it's just like 15% of the air in your lungs like never actually moved in and out, but you can store oxygen there. Okay. All right. Good question. I don't know. I think all of these answers sound very plausible to me. 
But um, if someone wants to look it up and get the official answer, that would be great. Um, okay, so we talked about this. And so back to our case. So now we have this 65-year-old female who we know took some NSAIDs two hours prior to arrival. Is, uh, is, uh, our assumption is that she's having an allergic reaction that is now involving her tongue and her upper airways. And those are our vital signs. Dr. Ray has identified that she may be at risk for airway compromise, and she has whisked her away into a resuscitation room. Now what? So now I'm thinking difficult versus potentially a failed airway. Mm -hmm. And I'm thinking I really want to take a good look at everything, see how swollen her tongue is. Um, so you go back and you look at her, and you do a melon potty, and their melon potty is... Um, a grade three, and if you remember what that looks like, is you can barely see any of the soft palate. Mm -hmm. <coughs> but otherwise, she seems to have no other issues with um, either lemons or moans or short. So, um, except maybe her age. Right. I want to get everything ready for a potential intubation. Okay. Um, I want my glidoscope. I would probably, I had a patient like this with Dr. McCoy. He told me I should have a scalpel and some betadine in my pocket. <laughs> um, I'd also maybe consider if we get there in a week intubation with someone like this. Um, what do you, what else do you want? <laughs> yeah, so good. So you're, you're on the right track. So you're like, you're thinking about airway, airway, airway. And of there you go. So you also want to treat the underlying cause too, uh, as best as you can. So this this person would certainly get epinephrine, and so you would get how much epi? Oh, point three in the thigh. That's perfectly fine. Yeah, she's not hypotensive, so I think that's pretty good. And do you remember the concentration? One to ten thousand. One yeah, there you go. So there's one. Just remember, if you're giving it IV, you want it a little more dilute. Okay. Yeah. So, um, so one to one thousand in the thigh, perfectly good. And then you were talking. I heard you mentioned steroids. Yeah, right. That's very, very reasonable. It's not going to take effect right away. She probably will take IV steroids, although we know IV and PO don't make any difference. But she's not going to take it orally, and you don't want her to. And then uh, you might give her diphenhydramine or something like that. Um, and um, Good. So now we've done that, and uh, I think this was a patient of ours, right, Dr. Kenny? Yeah. And I, and so we did that, and um, she was still having respiratory distress. She was still maintaining her saturation. Her tongue and lips seemed to be about the same to us, um, but she said she was still having a hard time breathing. She's like, I'm having a hard time breathing. We kept reassessing her. Dr. Kenny, I don't think, even left her bedside but kept reassessing her on a continuous basis. And we were debating uh, with all of those, um, those airway pearls that I gave you before, and uh, we went through our head and said, is this the time to do it when we have optimal, not optimal, but, but semi-optimal conditions, or do we, you know, do we, are things going to get better or not? And that's a hard decision, but at some point we just called it a day and said, I, we, we're not so convinced that things are going to get better in the next 10 to 15 minutes, and we decided we're going to intubate her. 
So now she's a difficult airway, right? We can't really see in the back of her throat. Um, so what are we going to do? We're going to do, we're in our difficult airway algorithm. So we considered at this point to paralyze her, but we decided we weren't going to. And we were going to do what's called an awake intubation. Um, Dr. Sai, what is your go-to awake intubation? How would you do your awake intubation? Um, so I would need to, uh, I would use ketamine as my main drug for sedation, but I would also like to get them, uh, try to numb up their uh, upper airway as much as possible. So what I would do is get 4% lidocaine. Mm -hmm. um, I'd uh, put it in a nebulizer mask and have them nebulize it. Um, I would do that for, you know, 5-10 minutes, try to get the oropharynx nebulized, then have them, uh, then, uh, have them open their mouth and use an actual like mucosal atomizer or like a hurricane spray and just try to spray the crap out of the back of their throat mm -hmm. with hurricane spray to get a lot of topical anesthesia there. Um, I would uh, have I would have an ear, nose, and throat doctor available uh, at the bedside. Mm -hmm. um, I would give them ketamine and uh, I would already lidocaine. I would pre-lidocaine their neck with epinephrine. Mm -hmm. Um, and have a crate kit open, completely open, not like just available, like open, draped, ready to rock, and give the patient uh, ketamine and uh, use a glide scope to intubate them. Great. So those are pretty much the exact same steps that we took, uh, plus or minus one or two things. But I think the, the thing is you have to have something locked away in your brain so that when you go, oh my goodness, uh, I think they need to be intubated, but I'm scared to paralyze them. And when those thoughts come, and we've already talked about all the mnemonics, then you have to have a plan. And whatever your plan is, is probably going to be okay, but there's going to be a plan. I'll tell you what my plan is. Uh, they're pretty much what Dr. Seip said. I'm, I'm going to get the glide scope out. I'm going to get my bougie out. I'm going to get my crike kit out. And so those are the three things. Uh, I don't think we prepped her neck, did we, Dr. Kenny? No. no. We didn't prep her, but we did call ENT. Yeah. <laughs> I was very confident in AK-47 to not spray everything across the room. So we did get ENT on the phone, and they were coming in, I, I think, from another hospital or something like that. But our strategy was to use the GlideScope, like you mentioned, Dr. Ray. You can also um, use um, a scope. So our steps to a uh, successful awake intubation is really all the secretions are pretty crazy. You have a ton of secretions, and um, there's some talk that ketamine actually increases those secretions. It's probably the drug that I would use. Um, you want local anesthesia, so this 4% of uh, lidocaine that's nebulized is a good way to do it. Uh, and I'll tell you exactly how to do it, because I'm saying 4%, but you're going to forget. Like, 4%, where, how, who, you know, I'll tell you how to do it. Sedate, so you want a, you want a sedation. We talked about ketamine. You want it, the use of proper equipment. So drying the mouth is kind of essential. Now, we gave this patient uh, Benadryl, which probably would have been enough. But we did also give this patient glycopyrrolate. Here it is right here, 0.2 milligrams per ml. And um, it takes about 10 to 15 minutes to actually work. So you just push this, you IV push this. And you, if you have time, you wait. If you don't have time, which you usually don't, um, then, then you just you, you give it and you hope it has some effect. And <coughs> it, it may or may not. Um, I think it... 
I, she did have some secretion. I have a video of this. Um, so you have um, suction with uh, Yankauer, so you can suck all of that, all the uh, secretions that are coming out of there. Um, you wanted to use the, you want to use the four percent lidocaine, which Dr. Sleep had mentioned, and this is really how I do it. Um, use use five mLs of five percent lidocaine at five liters per minute. I know it's four percent, but there is no five percent, so that's how I remember it. Five five five. So five mLs of four percent lidocaine at five liters per minute, and then this stuff starts working in the oral pharynx and the hypopharynx, and then you can use your hurricane spray as well to numb it up. Some people say take a glob of four percent <coughs> lidocaine, stick it on um, a tongue depressor, and try to get back there and like put a glob of that stuff back there, have them gargle. I, I just find those things kind of technically difficult, and then it gets back to my, my um, my aversion to the gag reflex, and so if I'm going to, you know, stick a tongue depressor back there, you know, she's probably going to gag, and if she, you know, I don't want to risk it, so I I use this, and then I at times if I can see anything, then I'll spray the hurricane spray back there. Um, ketamine, so you know, ketamine. I love ketamine. Um, I use one mix <coughs> per kg. You can use. 0.5 mg per kg, but you just want them to be sedated enough so that when you put your endotracheal tube in there, along with the local um, anesthetics, you're, she's not gagging and feeling uncomfortable. So you get the best possible look without actually paralyzing them. Um, yes? What do you do if it's like a, a head bleed or something with risk of intracranial pressure and you don't want to use ketamine? Or you wouldn't use ketamine in the perfect world? Is there another thing you'd recommend for an awake? Well, you can use, um, you can use lower doses of propofol if you wanted. You could use a half dose of etomidate also. Um, so every, but you know, the propofol has more of a chance of them losing their respiratory drive. So you have to be a little bit careful. But we use propofol all the time in procedural sedation. So you can use it. Of course, in traumas, your head bleed, you're taking trauma, so you're also worried about hypotension. So there's no, there's no perfect answer, actually. You know, ketamine and head bleeds are all theoretical. So, you know, the, the intracerebral pressure equals what? The mean arterial pressure minus... No, the per cerebral perfusion pressure equals mean arterial, pr arterial, pr mean arterial pressure minus the ICP. So in, in ketamine, everything kind of goes up. So the cerebral perfusion pressure usually remains constant. So, yeah, there's a theoretical, I don't know, it's a good question. You're kind of stuck. Kind of fallen, but never gotten to try it. Yeah. Uh, you could use Versed. You still have the hypotensive effects of Versed. It's fallen a little bit out of favor just because the un predictive nature of Versed and how much to use and whether you're going to get complete sedation. So, um, the amount of Versed that's needed for a true, if you're using RSI, the amount of Versed you use is much different than the two to five milligrams you give to procedurally sedate somebody. So you're going to give up to like 10 milligrams of Versed, which has a pretty, pretty substantive uh, effect on your cardiopulmonary system. So it's, there's no right answer. It's a very, very hard question to answer, but a good one. So quickly, um, especially for you ones <laughs> becoming twos, I want you guys to use this, this laryngoscope, um, the glide scope that we have, as many times as possible. So 
How many of you guys, a show of hands, have used the GlideScope? So most of you guys have. So I just want you to get familiar with it. I know right now it's, there's some literature and some movement. Our expert opinions are saying we should not be doing direct laryngoscope on our first pass attempts anymore. We should probably be doing this or bougie attempted just to kind of, it, it shows some extra success. And they think they, um, Ron Walls and company think that this will be kind of the wave of the future. So, um, so anyways, if you're going to use this, um, it's different than DL, right? So there's a PSPS thing that I kind of remember in my head. So you look at the patient, you slip the blade of the GlideScope right down the middle, which is different from when you use a DL, when you kind of, <coughs> you still scissor the mouth open and you can still have someone, you know, opening the corners of the mouth, but you're not sweeping the tongue away in the same way. You are controlling the tongue, but you're not sweeping the tongue away. You're going right down the middle, and then you look at the screen. And then once you see the epiglottis, the arytenoids and the epiglottis popping up, you go back, and you got that in motion, you got that where you need it, you go back to the patient with your, um, with, um, with your endotracheal tube, because now you're going to pass the tube, kind of pass it a little bit from the side, so you don't block the view when you get in there, and then you go back to the screen once you get into the mouth. So it's patient, screen, patient, screen. That's how I kind of remember it. Okay, so that's a little bit of that. Back to what Dr. Seip was saying, you want to use this mucosal atomizing device. Um, and once again, our 4% lidocaine comes back up. So um, if, you are, if, if you have a hard time remembering numbers like I do, I really have, a, I know like, is it medium, low, medium, or high? And that's kind of how I remember things. So I have to kind of trick my brain. So always remember this 5% lidocaine, 555. That's how, how you initially anesthetize the oropharynx with 5 mLs of 4% lidocaine at 5 liters per minute. Again, you're using the same 5%, excuse me, 4% lidocaine. And if you want to use 5 mLs, it's not the end of the world, but 2 or 3 mLs. So you just kind of have an understanding when the shit hits the fan, you're not like scrambling. What is it? What is it? What is it? What is it? You're going to pull out your handy dandy like phone. Yeah, sure you can. And you can look up stuff. There's no, there's no rush in it. But sometimes when, when things are really, when you're really under pressure, you, at least you have some, um, some understanding of, of how, to, how to proceed. Let me show you this intubation in particular that uh, was so masterfully done by Dr. Kinney. Um, so this is with a GlideScope. We recorded this. This is, this is, an, this is the patient that we saw, um, and it's a real patient. So he's scissoring the mouth right here. He scissors the mouth open. He's looking at the patient. This is the P part. And there he goes. There's some secretion here. You can see that. Here's more secretion. And she may be coughing here. Now you see the epiglottis. And now he's, so he went from patient and now he's looking at the screen. This is not the patient anymore. He's looking actually at the screen. You, sees, you see the cords moving here? That's hard to pass a tube through there. Plus, She's, she's protecting her airway. Here's a mucosal atomizing device, which wasn't the ideal device that we had. We didn't have the right one, but um, you're supposed to slip that semi-rigid device in there, and it's supposed to spray this lidocaine right in here, right on the cords, and right past the cords into the trachea, so it gives her a little bit of comfort. 
you could see now when when you when Dr. Kinney tries to pass the tube, um, you'll see what happens. Um, she starts coughing. See, see, see that? She's she's trying her darndest to protect her airway right now. <laughs> she doesn't want you to pass anything through her cords, which is a natural response of all human beings. So, and so now this is really hard because he's dealing with a closed-off airway. And now he's irritating it more because anytime you like touch um, the epiglottis and the retinoids here, it's just getting a little, little bit more inflamed. So at this point, he tells me, you know, BC, can you give her some more ketamine? Which is what we did. You could have done one other thing, which we didn't think about, or I didn't think about at the time, is to paralyze her. You could see the cores now. Now it's going to be the smoothest intubation ever. You could see the cores. I mean, there's no doubt he can... So all I had to do is push the succinylcholine. 30 seconds later, she would have stopped breathing. Everything would have loosened up. Boom. Damn, put the cords through. But, and see? She's, <laughs> she's coughing. She's coughing. And she's... And uh, at this point, I, I, we sedated her more, and, <coughs> and, and she had a, a good outcome and, and did well. And she may have done well if we had not intubated her, but I'm not sure. And we always take this, um, this pretest probability, this kind of this risk assessment. When is the right time to intubate someone? It's not always clear, but when you're thinking it and you don't want things to get worse, it's better to do it than not to do it when you have semi-control of the situation. All right. BC, ideally, you've got the glide in, you see your atomizer in your view, and you get it kind of up so you can spray into the cords, and that should keep them from. Yeah, so the problem we have is we have, shot the, low. We have the little triangular well, mad device. That goes uh, in the nose. We didn't have the yeah. <clears throat> that nice picture of the yeah. curved tube. So you have a little like, sponge thing. Mm -hmm. uh, so it was straight, so I couldn't go in and then angle it upwards very easily. I see. Yeah. It looks like it flowed. Isn't it supposed to mist? It's supposed to miss. I'm not sure if all the mist just coalesced and came down. Um, but yeah, so you're, you're trying to get right to basically where your tube would go. You're trying to go right there and then squirt the two to three mLs. Yeah, and then yeah, and then you know you wait like 30 seconds and then intubate them. So in summary, you want to assess for a difficult airway using your mnemonics, which. I just want you guys to know that there are ways to do that, and you get your clinical gestalt. You're like, wow, I don't know, they're obese. They got, you know, they've had surgery on their neck, and wow, they have really, they have a really bad overbite. This might be a difficult intubation, and if if that's the case, at least think about not using RSI. And if you're going to do RSI, then have your adjuncts, all your adjuncts, ready. <laughs> Because you don't want to get into a situation that you cannot intubate someone and then you cannot ventilate someone, right? That's your, that's your crash airway algorithm. So if you can predict that, then you might choose to do, do an awake, quote-unquote, intubation. Remember the seven Ps to intubation? That's just the preparation part. I really want you guys to get into a habit of checking your equipment, pre-oxygenating, making sure you have everything ready, positioning the patient, positioning yourself properly, getting your suction right, getting all the meds, um, considering pre-treatment, uh, of course, um, um, and then placement, and then post-intubation stuff, okay? Simplify the awake intubation, have a plan. My plan is glycopyrrolate, uh, lidocaine, ketamine, MAD, Glidescope. That's my plan.
you can have any plan you want, but have a plan. Uh, these are just things to consider for those who are looking at this lecture at home. So what does MOANS stand for? And, and for you guys to kind of consider, I know you know it already. Um, if you cannot intubate and cannot ventilate, what, you sh what should you do next? We just spoke about that. How quickly will a moderately ill 70 kilo person desaturate? And so most of our folks are moderately ill when we intubate them. Sometimes they're fine. And so if, you have, if you're intubating a completely healthy person, you have up to about six to seven minutes before they start desaturating. A lot of time, a lot of time. You wait 30 seconds for your paralytics to work and you should be in business. And it might seem like an eternity when you miss the first, when you're struggling with the first intubation, the first attempt. But remember, you have time <coughs> to regroup. If they're not desaturating at that point, I would highly recommend not bagging them. But once they start desaturating, they're going to go pretty swiftly. So if they're less, if they were at 99 and now they're at 90, they're going to pretty much spiral downwards pretty quickly. And then it's time to bag them back up and then think of another twist to your intubation so that you can be successful the second go around. Um, and then write the order for nebulized lidocaine. I kind of hit that home just so you kind of remember as best as you can. This is one of my favorite poets. Just something I thought I'd share.